Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. We might think that Donald J. Trump invented lies and insinuation and making up what seems to be gossip. This is not the case. Our guest today wrote a book about three men way back in the 20th century who were ahead of Trump and maybe did it better. One of those men became a mentor to Trump. We will get into all of that with our guest, Christopher M. Elias, author of Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation. Christopher is visiting assistant professor of history and American studies at St. Olaf College. I am happy to welcome Christopher Elias to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bob. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, so my first question is, what drew you to this topic? Uh, it's in some ways a really kind of fascinating opportunity to look back at a time in history that we think we know a lot about. That is the immediate uh, post-World War II era, the morning or the beginning of the Cold War, and uh, take a story that I think all of us think we know and try to flip it on its head. And so the thing that really drew me to the story originally was Roy Cohn himself, uh, who is uh, this famous anti-communist lawyer who made it big when he was really young. He started working for Joseph McCarthy and the federal government when he was 27 years old and had this immense amount of power at a young age. And initially, the thing that drew me to Cohn was actually this grand irony that's at the center of his life, which is the fact that Cohn was one of the leading practitioners of the Lavender Scare, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, going after homosexuals and people perceived to be homosexual in the United States, while at the same time leaving a double life himself as somebody who was having sex with other men. And so that irony, that paradox really kind of drew me into Cohn. And then it's a bit uh, like the proverbial onion where you start peeling and layer after layer comes off. Uh, and the thing that got me interested in this story specifically in, in putting these three characters together was this moment in the Army McCarthy hearings that I begin the book with. Um, and that moment, I'll just describe it very uh, quickly, is this spot in which during the Army McCarthy hearings, a moment which we are told has to do with national security, fears of uh, communism, uh, fears of the federal government perhaps even collapsing under the weight of uh, various insurgents and spies from the Soviet Union and other communist countries coming into America. Uh, you have this exchange between um, Joe McCarthy and Joseph Welch, who's the, the lawyer for the army, and it really kind of centers around homophobic and masculinist vernacular. Uh, they're talking about a photo that has appeared into evidence and Welch asks if it has come from a pixie um, and uh, McCarthy kind of has a rejoinder to that. And then Welch kind of in response to McCarthy's rejoinder says, or maybe it came from a fairy. And so I'm looking at this and watching the tape because all of this was recorded and broadcast live on American television at the time to very high viewership. I'm saying, okay, why at this moment talking about national security and anti-communism, is there this kind of 
masculinist, homophobic bantering going about. And of course, it had to do to many degrees with Roy Cohn being in the room uh, and Joe Welch trying to point to Cohn as homosexual. And so then I, I kind of started from there and I said, okay, do people know about this rumor? To what degree do people know about this rumor? How did the rumor spread? And that's that's how I got into it. And you brought in the other two players, uh, that is uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, and Joseph McCarthy, uh, because they had a number of things in common. Yeah, they all have these interesting biographical overlaps. Um, none of them were ever fathers. All three of them are seen in, to some degree as outsiders due to either their religion or their geographic uh, provenance or something else. Uh, McCarthy was Catholic from Wisconsin. Uh, Roy Cohn was, uh, even though his father was a powerful judge and a friend of Franklin Roosevelt's in New York City, specifically the Bronx, uh, Cohn himself felt like an outsider because of his Jewishness and possibly because of his queerness. Uh, and then Hoover himself, perhaps the most powerful American of the 20th century, in many ways feels like an outsider uh, due to the fact that while he grows up around the Washington bureaucratic uh, cabal, this kind of bureaucracy in Washington, and he grew up in Washington, D.C. itself, uh, Hoover himself was never actually able to break into this elite establishment that we hear so much about when we talk about mid-century American politics. And so you have three men that were perceived as outsiders. You have three men that were to some degree uh, throughout their lives perceived as gay or queer or non-normative in their sexuality, quote unquote, non-normative in their sexuality. Um, and three men who in many ways were willing to do really anything in the pursuit of power. And that is something else that connects these three. And I thought by putting the three together, you really got an understanding of, once again, going to the role that homophobia and gossip had in that moment, you really got an understanding of the DNA. You really got an understanding of the ancestry of that moment and not just the moment itself. And by having those three men in conversation with each other, it allowed uh, more of this archaeology uh, that I really wanted to get into with the project. Uh, another common aspect between the three men is that they all um, did not follow the law. They all broke the law <laughs> in one way or another over many years. And all three of them were uh, legal authorities at the same time, right? So can we have that? They're all attorneys, right? right. They're all, all three are attorneys. Uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover sometimes tall, calls the nation's top cop, right, uh, as head of first yep. Bureau of Investigation and then later named the FBI. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. They did not uh, follow the law, even while they had this responsibility. And the question for many historians, and I think the question for all of us, to some degree, is were they not following the law because this was a personal um, or so invested in their own professional and personal achievement and gaining personal and professional power that they're willing to either sideswipe or fully ignore the law? Or uh, were they individuals who believed in what they were doing so fully that they believed that 
in this moment, America is in such a grave crisis that we actually need to suspend the laws. We need to suspend the rule of law in order to save the United States from this great uh, specter, this great evil of communism. But one of the things you point out in your book is that uh, Roy Cohn, when he started, he wasn't a committed anti-communist. He was looking for something that would fit him above the fray, that would make him more outstanding. So he he picked on anti-communism and he saw Joe McCarthy as the guy who was going to fight the fight and he could be a part of it. Uh, so it's not like he had this inbred uh, anti-communism. It was a, a convenient topic that would launch him into the limelight. Right. And in fact, his lineage was liberal. His father was a Democratic machine politician or judge, I should say, uh, from the Bronx. Uh, his family, Cohn himself actually brags the day of his death that he remained a registered Democrat until the day he died. And so he uh, has this you know, idea that you know, he is, yes, somebody who has certain uh, perhaps because of his ancestry, perhaps because of his lineage, has these certain political commitments. But his his audacity, his uh, his desire for uh, power, his desire for achievement and success, and the way he defines it is so great. His desire to be known is so great that in many ways he's willing to throw away whatever ethical qualms he had, if he had any at all, to achieve this goal. Um, well, full, dis- well, full disclosure, uh, I want to let you know that I was born and raised in the Bronx. <laughs> I did not know Roy Cohn, and I didn't mm. go to Horace Mann, so mm-hmm. those things are out. But another thing that uh, is a common thread between the three men is their uh, adept manipulation of the press. Uh, You point out how good they were at doing that. And since we know that Roy Cohn was somewhat of a mentor to Donald Trump, he learned some of his lessons there. And one of the other things I think, this is my opinion, is Mm. that uh, Trump never wrote anything down, never signed anything other than leases or, or documents that were necessary, but never gave orders that were written down anywhere, which is just what the mobsters do. Yeah, he, I mean, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. First of all, in the, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm from Boston, a Red Sox fan. So if we don't get along (laughs) here for our discussion, we'll have a route uh, to that animosity. But the, uh, the fact of the matter is that Trump learns from Cohn, I think many, many things about not only how to gain power, and not only how to wield power, but if you're going to do a certain number of illegal or somewhat legal or maybe not legal or kind of sort of legal things when you are in pursuit of that power and exercising that power, how to hide it, right? How to obfuscate so there's a way that uh, you have this you know, plausible deniability, at least in a courtroom. Uh, one of my favorite stories Cohn and uh, Trump meet at, uh, there are many kind of origin stories to the superhero duo, but uh, Cohn and Trump meet somewhere in the 70s, probably at Le Club, which is a members-only club, nightclub in New York City. And 
pretty quickly Cohn ingratiates himself with Trump, specifically Trump, and uh, as we all know, his father were in charge of this real estate company in uh, New York, and the federal government ends up suing the Trumps a number of times uh, because they are involved in discriminatory housing practices in the various apartments that they own. Uh, specifically against um, African-American, uh, Black Americans. And Cohn represents them in the first of those lawsuits. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that the Trump organization settles with the federal government. They say, yes, we know we've done this. Uh, we'll do better next time. And the, and the federal government lets it uh, lets them go into this kind of structured settlement and, and uh, go forward in that way. Cohn, though, as their legal representation, he goes out into the press and he addresses the press and he says, oh, well, we're so happy the federal government has backed off and said that they were wrong and that the Trump organization hasn't done anything, right? And so there is this, at the core of the beginning of the business relationship, right, their first official thing together, there is this lesson that is spoken very clearly to Donald and Fred Trump and anybody else that's listening to the Trump organization. The facts are one thing. The headline is another, right? And if you can make the headline say, what you want the headline to say, the facts maybe don't matter. And I think that's a lesson that is taken to heart by uh, the Trump administration, obviously. Yeah, and that was also something, going back to George W. Bush, he never apologized for anything that he did. And that's something else that, uh, uh, that Roy Cohn and Donald Trump uh, were following as well. Um, so much of the book, Bob, sorry, I didn't mean to get yeah, but so much of the book is about masculinity um, and this idea that in order to lead the United States, you meet, need this hard masculine toughness uh, that Arthur Schlesinger called it earlier in one of his books in the 1960s. And to have this hard masculine toughness means not apologizing. It means to not uh, capitulate. It means not to necessarily own up to an error. If there was an error, it's always moving forward. And to apologize, regardless of whether or not it's obvious that you've made a mistake, to apologize is to show weakness. And I think that has become dominant in a lot of American politics on both sides of the aisle uh, since the 1940s and 1950s, uh, and is something that has been embraced by a number of politicians because weakness or uh, apology uh, is immediately read as a weakness, and that's something they can't have. So one of the things you pointed out is why you got into this, is that this is an area that you thought you knew something about, but once you got into it, you found out you learned a hell of a lot more. Well, I could say the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yes, we had heard stories about J. Edgar Hoover dressing in women's clothing. We knew that Roy Cohn had been uh, uh, sleeping with men, he did develop AIDS, although he denied that he had that until almost the day he died. But Angels in America was all about him in some sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joseph McCarthy, uh, he also had all kinds of rumors about him and his masculinity. So he was really tough. He was not a boxer, as you point out, but a brawler. Uh, he he would fight and he was about six feet and weighed about 198 pounds. So he was a tough looking guy. Whereas, as you described somebody's uh, description of J. Edgar Hoover, among other things, he had a mincing walk. Uh, <laughs> and you point out that one of the reasons that Franklin Roosevelt wanted to replace him when he came in in 1933 is that he wasn't masculine enough. 
Yeah, the all 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 three of these guys have to some degree these weak underbellies, uh, and I'm I'm speaking politically in the sense that there are aspects of their personality, there are aspects of their identity that leave them open to criticism, especially in a moment where masculinity and a specific type of masculinity, this hard masculine toughness is so highly valued. And so all three of them very intelligently pivot to downplay their, um, to downplay those inadequacies, to downplay those weaknesses or perceived weaknesses. You know, you brought up Tony Kushner's Angels in America. And one of my favorite lines from that play, uh, the Cone character is addressing rumors of his homosexuality. He says, I can't be homosexual because I'm too powerful, right? I'm too powerful to be gay. And obviously I'm not gay because look at all the power I have. And that's really kind of the rub for uh, for uh, Roy Cohn, right? He's spending every summer on uh, in Provincetown, Massachusetts, a famous gay vacation community. He is, uh, he's very clearly bringing uh, young men that he's having affairs with, even to the White House uh, to meet Nancy and Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, right? But he's continuously denying this because he has this association, like many Americans did and still do, this negative association with homosexuality and weakness, right? Homosexuality and a lack of power, homosexuality and a lack of willingness of uh, what is necessary to do. Right. And obviously, in my language here, I am mixing up gender and sexuality, uh, this idea that masculine equals straight and weak equals feminine or queer um, is certainly uh, something that we have you know, debunked or seeking to debunk in modern society. But it's something that is so baked into American identity through the 20th century. It is an issue that you have to uh, grapple with, um, certainly. Uh, McCarthy was uh, the the perhaps most quote unquote heavy quotes here traditionally masculine of the three. He was a chicken farmer at the age of sixteen. He uh, went off to the Marines. Um, various stories as to whether or not he actually showed bravery under fire or it was all kind of a ruse uh, have amped up and we're not 100% sure of the truth there. But he comes back from the Marines. Uh, when he, before going to the Marines, he was actually a boxer. He was on the boxing team at Marquette and later coached boys boxing. He engages in a number of these traditionally masculine pursuits, gambling, roughhousing, um, you know, going to cat houses, going to burlesque clubs. Uh, and so he had the most traditionally masculine persona in a way. And even then, because these accusations of possible queerness were so powerful at this moment, McCarthy himself faced accusations in print and by the proverbial water cooler that he was engaged in homosexual affairs. And I think that illustrates, and maybe not even with McCarthy specifically, maybe not something about his sexuality or his masculinity or anything about the fact of the matter, but rather the power and the purity of those accusations, by which I mean how powerful the accusations could be in this specific political moment. I'd like to uh, get back to the main uh, title of the book, Gossip Men. And what I want to do is to um, give the definition, definition that you have in your book. Uh, gossip 
spread through syndicated newspaper columns, widely popular magazines, and word of mouth, became a means to express, discuss, and negotiate concerns about national security, gender roles, and sexual identity. Uh, so studying uh, Ed, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, and Roy Cohn can help us understand long-term developments in politics, gender, and sexuality. Uh, so all three of those men used uh, gossip and innuendo to a great degree, in fact, uh, and lies, out-out lies. It, it, Joe McCarthy, when running for senator, uh, stated that he has uh, foot orthotics because of the 10 pounds of shrapnel that are still in his leg. Well, I don't think he ever got injured uh, in, in his service to the country. Yeah, he, he, he didn't. Uh, well, actually, technically he did. He has a Purple Heart. But the injury was not because of uh, shrapnel from a bomb or anything like that, but is rather because he was doing this shellback routine, which I guess is a traditional kind of party that is held for sailors who have first crossed the equator. He had a couple of buckets on his feet, tripped, fell, and went down a whole flight of stairs, and that's why he had such issues with his legs and broke his legs there. The, the 10 pounds of shrapnel that I think... He told numerous people, but most famously, a group of students at the University of Wisconsin when he was speaking there, uh, were not there, there at all. But McCarthy, uh, you know, all, all three of these, when I talk about gossip, I talk about two things, really. I'm talking about a form of communication, right? A way that we communicate and learn information in, in some ways you can think of as the gossip industry. That's columnists, that's uh, gossip magazines. You know, today it might be OK or TMZ or The Sun or the, certainly the National Enquirer is another one. In the 1950s, there were these very popular magazines. Uh, the most popular was Confidential, but there were legions of these. Hush Hush, Tattler, Top Secret, On the QT, On the Download, all of these wonderful names for gossip magazines. Um, and then you had gossip columnists, uh, people like Walter Winchell, uh, Hedda Hopper, and others who were syndicated in major American newspapers, but were willing to sometimes tiptoe and sometimes dance uh, very gloriously into topics that were perhaps not uh, for the front page of the New York Herald Tribune or the front page of uh, the Washington Post. So that's, that's what gossip as a formulation. The other thing is gossip is content, right? Uh, and the way that I just define gossip in that way is information that the subject of the gossip would perhaps rather not be heard. It's um, malicious gossip. There's also positive gossip, right? Anything like, I remember very famously, I think either soon before, or soon after his death, it came out that JFK Jr. Uh, had been giving millions of dollars to charity anonymously, right? That's positive gossip. I heard that this guy was doing this, right? And so, so you have uh, these multiple forms of gossip and all three men, something else that brings them together is the fact that they are using these multiple forms of gossip to forward their own political careers, but also forward often very successfully uh, the ideas, commitments uh, that they have, the political ideology that they're adhering to at that moment, most specifically kind of a right of center anti-communist. In, you mention any number of times in your book, uh, surveillance state masculinity. 
Could you define that for us, please? Yeah, it's kind of a, a toss to other historians. Um, one of these things that you have to do when you're writing a history and, and, and show uh, where your argument is novel. What it comes from initially is something that's called security state masculinity. It's this masculinity that I alluded to earlier that many historians see as growing up around the time of the national security state that is immediately after World War II. And security, excuse me, uh, yeah, security state uh, masculinity is this hard masculine toughness in which you show uh, no weakness whatsoever. It's born of assurance. Um, there's certainly something about it that is white racially. Uh, whiteness is certainly folded into uh, uh, security state masculinity. And what I say is, yes, security state masculinity absolutely existed. There was this man in the gray flannel suit popped up to the, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a Madison Avenue, Mad Men, Don Draper aspect of masculinity that influenced uh, the federal government at the time. But my argument is this did not start in 1947. It did not start in 1940, 1947 being when the NSA was founded, when most historians date the security state beginning. It actually started a lot earlier with what I would say is a surveillance state. And the surveillance state, in my mind, begins actually in the late 19th century um, with American imperialist ambitions in places like the Philippines um, using surveillance of citizens in various countries and citizens in the United States to tamp down on any kind of um, anti-government expression, right? Uh, the U.S. military intelligence division in the Philippines very famously used this prototype of IBM punch cards, right? This initial version of IBM punch cards to track dissidents in the Philippines when the United States was at war uh, there in the earliest years of the 20th century. And so, so, so to me, surveillance state masculinity is this kind of masculine identity that has its origins not in the national security state, but rather the national surveillance state, um, and has a specific value or places a specific value, yes, on stoicism, yes, on energy, yes, on athleticism, um, but also on this idea of intelligence. And so those are two of the things that I'm pairing in this book, a change in the value of intelligence uh, and what it means to have intelligence, national security intelligence I'm talking about here, and also the way that intelligence is put to use in a masculine or masculinist way by the men who are uh, leading the charge. Well, if what you say uh, is correct and that the surveillance state started back in the end of the 19th century when we didn't have uh, all of the digital tools that we have now, I can't even imagine what might be the case today. We're not gonna get into that because that's <laughs> part of your book, but uh, it's, it's scary. Um, so uh, Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn did not embody surveillance state masculinity merely because it answered the questions dominating American politics at the moment. They sought power. They also needed to hide what were seen as their masculine deficiencies, which you mentioned before. In a time of deep anxiety, they too were driven by fear. And this is something that uh, it wasn't really seen by the people 
that they were dealing with. But this is a, an interesting point that you bring up. Uh, they were fearful of being outed, of uh, not being seen as the, the people they were trying to project that they were. So yeah, this moment. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I'm I'm done. Yeah, no, no. I was gonna say, you know, this moment of fear, this 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 idea that America was living in a culture of fear, is a reference to the 1950s. American culture, cultural depictions of the 1950s have gotten a lot better at embodying this element of the 50s. But I think with the you know Leave It to Beaver, even Happy Days. Uh, imagination of American culture. We think of these 50s as, well, maybe when America was great, to use another uh, phrase Hmm. uh, that's had purchase in American politics recently, right? Uh, That it was this happy-go-lucky time where everything was perfect. You were going to put on, um, you know, your boyfriend's Letterman sweater and go to the sock hop with him and um, maybe share a milkshake afterwards, right? There's, There's this element that everything was pretty calm in the United States. We had just defeated fascism. The war is over. Now is the time for the economy to boom, uh, families to begin, and these new wonderful home appliances to make it into our everyday lives, right? The fact of the matter is, yes, there is that economic growth. Yes, there is that feeling of uh, excitement and positivity in the United States in the 1950s, but there is this also um, countervailing or uh, other side of the coin, I should say, in the sense that Americans are deeply fearful of not conforming. They're deeply fearful of nuclear war. They're deeply fearful uh, of the insidious nature of communism um, and deeply fearful of you know many, many other things during the 1950s. So in addition to being this moment of hope, the 1950s was paradoxically this moment of deep, deep anxiety. And I think that we can capture, I think, by looking at Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn, you can capture that sense of anxiety from a political standpoint, because so much of their political power is based on them exploiting those anxieties to say, well, no, no, listen to me. Yes, I know things might appear to be going well in the economy, it appears to be going well in many ways, but there are actually spies in the federal government that are working to take this away from us. There's actually this new international movement that's even worse than fascism, even worse than Nazism, that is going to come and possibly take over and infect the body politic of the United States. And so so they're amplifying anxieties and fears for the purposes of gaining followers. Um, But at the same time, they have, as, as the quote that you read refers to, they had their own fears that they themselves were going to be exposed and certain elements of their personal lives were going to be exposed. And so what I like to do as a historian is, is do microhistory. That is, take these specific moments, these specific stories, these specific lives and say, okay, how is this life both influenced by and a outcome of the moment in which this person is living, uh, the moment in which the story is unfolding. And by doing that, we get to understand a little bit more about the people at the heart of the story, but then the bigger themes that are animating the historical moment. Um, it's interesting uh, in using uh, uh, a reporter's story in the August 19th issue, that's uh, 1933 of Collier's, Ray Tucker emphasized Hoover's supposedly feminine attributes. Hmm. In appearance, Mr. Hoover looks utterly unlike the storybook sleuth. 
He is short, fat, businesslike, and walks with a mincing step. Yeah, that's what I mentioned before. His black hair, swarthy skin, and collegiate haircut make him look younger than 38, but heavy horn-rimmed spectacles give him an air of age and authenticity. He dresses fastidiously with elevator, or I'm sorry, Eleanor blue as the favorite color for the match, matched shades of tie, handkerchief, and socks. A little pompous, he rides in an expensive limousine, even if only to a near self-service cafeteria. Mm. Wow. Now, I'm getting at a point here. Uh, you mentioned in the book the fact that when there were rumors about his more feminine side or other things that might have been going on, he sent out FBI agents to intimidate those people. That's mm. definitely illegal, but that's how fearful he was of being shown to be less than the masculine image that he was projecting. Yeah, he's, he's again, going back to his willingness for illegality. There's certainly illegal uh, to use um, government resources uh, to, to help yourself uh, to support your own narrative, but as a government official. But the other thing, you know, that's going on there is the quotation that you just read is so packed with room, right? They talk about, I, of course, emphasize this idea of his mincing step. Eleanor Blue is actually, a point I make in the book, is actually a lavender color. And even in 1933, lavender was associated with homosexuality. Um, there were stories of, quote unquote, lavender lads that had appeared in major gossip magazines. And uh, people in the know knew that lavender was a color uh, associated with homosexuality. And so I focus on that in the book, but I, I'm struck also by something you just read. They talked about his swarthy skin, another classic rumor. Um, that is always circulated about J. Edgar Hoover is actually that he had um, African-American or black ancestors in the family. Gore Vidal is actually a purveyor of this rumor in a number of interviews. He's come out and said, well, the, the, the rumor around DC was always that the Hoovers were, you know, had some black ancestors, some black blood. And so the, the part of what makes this so fascinating to me is Collier's is a really best-selling magazine, a little bit like Time. Uh, or Newsweek at, at the moment in 1933. And so the author there is putting into practice this element where he is burying, Ray Tucker is burying these leads um, for people to pick up on if they're in the know. If they can say, oh, Swarthy, oh yeah, that's that rumor about Hoover and his black ancestry. Oh, the lavender, the Eleanor blue, that's actually a lavender color um, made famous by Eleanor Roosevelt, the color of the dress she wore to uh, I believe Roosevelt's first inauguration in 33. Um, so at the moment, people all knew Eleanor Blues. So he, he's he's hiding these things because if he does come out and say, well, I heard that Jagger Hoover is particularly feminine, may actually be gay. Number one, it's not going to get into print, right? Because of the social mores of the time uh, governing kind of what is uh, socially acceptable. But number two, as you mentioned, he's going to get an FBI agent knocking on his door and saying, what the heck are you doing, right? Our great leader at the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, is definitely not uh, gay and, and definitely not feminine. And uh, if you say anything more about that, you know, we're going to give you some trouble. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is supposedly in the 1950s, this is in the FBI files, uh, 
supposedly in the 1950s, a woman who was either married to or a friend of an FBI agent heard in a beauty shop, a beauty parlor owner talking about uh, Hoover's supposed homosexuality. And she went and told her uh, friend in the FBI. And so you had two or three FBI agents showing up in a beauty parlor in Baltimore, uh, trying to quash this rumor before it uh, got out of hand. So going back to, you know, this anxiety theme that you and I have been talking about, Hoover is deeply anxious about these rumors getting out because he knows not only because of the possible embarrassment, but also uh, when Ray Tucker in that quotation you just read talks about the, the quote-unquote storybook sleuth, uh, the comic book FBI agent, J. Edgar Hoover basically wrote those comic books. He wrote the storybook, right? He is the one who uh, for the second half of the 1920s and into the 1930s, is really trying to put the G-man, the FBI agent, forward in American popular culture as a new hero. And he, as a leader of the G-man, has to be this uh, kind of popular superhero in some ways. He puts himself in magazine articles. He puts himself in movies uh, about the FBI, makes cameos in them. And so it's not only that he is trying to control a narrative about his sexuality and push back on possible embarrassment. It's also that he knows that this masculinist image of him is where his bread is buttered and where his money is made and is essential to the whole operation that he is running in Washington, D.C. And as you alluded to earlier, if he doesn't keep that image up, it will allow people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt an excuse to remove him from the head position at the FBI. I'm going to take a moment to reintroduce you uh, for someone who might just be tuning in. You are listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Christopher M. Elias, author of Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation. And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Uh, now, in getting to that, uh, as far as uh, not speaking the truth, uh, exaggerating things. Uh, let's move ahead here to uh, the collaboration between Roy Cohn and uh, Joe McCarthy. During the Army McCarthy hearings, uh, there were a number of, uh, and they were the prosecutors in this case, trying to rid uh, the Army of, uh, of communists. Uh, and they would prep uh, uh, witnesses and one of the things they did was have the witness state an easily provable lie. And then that would be the headline the next day. And then they would re retract it in small print, so to speak, uh, or mm. in almost sotto voce. So uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Conan McCarthy um, and Hoover as well, um, as we've talked about in our conversation, were very, very good in understanding the press of 1954, right? Um, and as a result, they knew that because of this competing press environment, that if they had, Conan McCarthy knew that if you have a witness come forward and say something that is easily, easily proven wrong, but helps you out um, earlier in the day, say before the three o'clock time that the Washington Star, or the Washington Post, or the New York Herald Tribune goes to the press, then you could ensure that the headline of the afternoon edition of those newspapers is what you want it to be, 
right? So if you have somebody come up and say, well, I know for a fact that this person uh, working for the United States Army at Fort Dix or Fort Bragg or wherever is actually a communist spy. And I saw them at this communist meeting when I myself was working uh, in this socialist communist um, group, right? That's going to be run by the newspapers as a headline in the afternoon editions, right? Now, when the cross-examination happens and um, the attorney for uh, whoever is being uh, whoever is being under trial there uh, says, well, were you actually, do you know that, you know, on this date, you were actually nowhere near where you said you were, you were actually nowhere near this communist meeting. So you couldn't have actually seen my client there or anything like that, right? That's going to come out, but it's going to be in small print in the next day's newspaper, right? And again, much like the conversation we we're having earlier about uh, Trump and Cohn working together to make sure you remember the headline and not the facts below the headline necessarily, it's the same kind of deal. What's going to stick in your head is that a witness said that uh, Army dentist Irving Paris was a uh, communist, right? Not that actually that witness was completely deconstructed in cross-examination. And so the, you know, this comes again from Hoover's attempt to make the G-Man such a uh, legend, an icon in American uh, culture and politics during the 1920s and 30s. This also comes from uh, Hoover and McCarthy, excuse me, McCarthy and Cohn, um, creating identities for themselves. And as they rose through the ranks, first in Wisconsin and, uh, and then in the Bronx, uh, respectively, they were creating a legend of themselves and making sure that the headline said about themselves what they wanted those headlines to say. Just to go back a bit uh, and, and emphasize the point you just made, uh, Hoover used Hollywood movies, radio serials, and comic books, as you pointed out, to sing the praises of the G-Men. And uh, somebody had mentioned that, and he uh, expelled, I mean, expanded on that. G-Men were his guys, the FBI, mm -hmm. and that was a good thing. Uh, and friendly journalists treated Hoover as a celebrity, but gossip columnists and reporters suspicious of Hoover's growing power printed rumors questioning Hoover's self-styled machismo, but he had already done what he wanted to do. There were those 12 or 14 movies that were made in the 30s. And then I think it was in the 70s or 80s, uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., uh, mm. there was the FBI. Uh, that was uh, not that long ago. And of course, the radio show uh, Gangbusters was about uh, the FBI. So he had done a lot to promote that image and to have his men be portrayed the way he wanted them to be. So these underlying aspects, it's like being on page six when they were alluding to his possible uh, feminine tendencies, but he had done the thing, just as you pointed out with burying the lead. I mean, they got out what they wanted to get out. We should also recognize that for every story like Ray Tucker's and Collier's that we quoted from earlier that is questioning Hoover's masculinity. There's actually another story um, written by Walter Winchell or another gossip columnist that's kind of in Hoover and Cohn's stable, actually praising them and saying, uh, oh, we've heard that uh, Jagger Hoover has been seen out with a young actress 
we've heard that Roy Cohn's uh, engagement to the young reporter Barbara Walters is just around the corner, right? And so, yes, there is this fear of gossip columnists in the sense that gossip columnists can uh, plant and talk about things that Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn don't want to be heard about, namely regarding their sexuality. But there's also this way that they were used to paint a personal picture of these three men in the way that the three men wanted to be thought as masculine, as roguish, as sexually desirable to women, uh, as people who were um, leaders in the fields of certainly business and politics, but also kind of leaders in as young men about town. Hoover himself was named by the Washington Post a couple of years, one of the most eligible bachelors in Washington. And I'm sure uh, he absolutely loved that publicity. If I haven't ever found evidence that he planted it himself, but uh, I'm sure that the FBI's uh, public relations division didn't do anything to assuade uh, the, uh, the papers from talking about Hoover as an eligible bachelor. And uh, Joseph McCarthy, uh, mm. It's interesting, uh, as we talked about before, he wasn't a boxer, he was a brawler. And it would be easy to draw parallels between McCarthy's boxing style and his political career. The proverbial rabid dog who refused to think strategically, blind to everything but his immediate goal. But as you point out, such an interpretation misreads the man. Centrally, it overlooks the aspects of his character that allows him to become, if only for a moment, one of the nation's most influential voices, his intelligence, his charisma, his work ethic, his brash bellicose style was a strategy that he thought was effective. And for many years, it was. McCarthy is elected in 1946 uh, as part of this great Republican takeover in Congress following World War II. And so President Harry S. Truman then has to deal with the number of for a number of years uh, with this uh, Republican uh, Congress. It's kind of uh, adversarial in many ways, not as adversarial as it is today, but certainly adversarial to the president. And there is this old legend that when... McCarthy's 1940 or 1952 re-election campaign uh, is coming up. He realizes that, you know, he's four years into a six-year term and he doesn't really have a signature um, cause. He doesn't have a hobby horse to ride that he can say, I've been working on this for you, the people of Wisconsin. There's actually been a number of minor scandals that have gotten his name in the newspaper, not having to do uh, really with communism or anything we're talking about, taking loans from corporations that he shouldn't, things of that nature. And the old narrative goes that uh, McCarthy is sitting at dinner with a number of friends, um, and I think including Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, Washington, and, and it says, what the heck can I start to work on that's going to get me reelected? And they come up with the idea of communism. And that, that story is completely false. The, uh, the McCarthy himself had been a strong anti-communist since the day he was elected to the United States Senate. Anti-communism, everyone has to remember, is not necessarily a conservative um, perspective at that moment. Basically, everybody in the United States government is an anti-communist. The question is, how are you going to go about that anti-communism? So to think that McCarthy is this ideological mercenary, and he only embraces this anti-communist moment because it is uh, beneficial to his own political career, I think is incorrect. 
right? I do think McCarthy to some degree is a true believer in the fears. And although there are moments at which he looks like he has lost the thread and he has lost control of the narrative that he's trying to push forward. And that's absolutely true, particularly as his drinking increases uh, throughout the 1950s, particularly at the beginning of his rise to power in the 1950, in 1950, in 1951, he is being, he is lucking out. He is kind of stumbling on uh, some things uh, that he perhaps wouldn't otherwise, but he is also being a bit deliberate uh, and choosing to present himself in a way that, as I say in the book, answers these kind of questions about the anxieties Americans have at that moment. But you point out that uh, he's known or remembered for the last few years of his life, but Mm. how did he get to such prominence? And you point out that the many secrets of Joe McCarthy's political success were he did his homework, came prepared, avoided talking politics directly, focused on topics both relevant and of interest to his audience, and asserted the authenticity of his working class roots. He presented himself as the epitome of working class masculinity. McCarthy embodied the touchstones of that persona, toughness, strength, boldness, vigor, and industry. He worked hard and he was, you know, by all accounts, brilliant guy. He got through um, high school very famously in one year. He hadn't gone to high school. And uh, at the time in Wisconsin, uh, you know, he's, I think he's 20 years old at the time in Wisconsin, as long as you could pass a battery of tests um, for each grade you got through. And he worked uh, his keister off and he passed all of those tests and went through uh, them in one year. So he did four years of high school in one. He then graduated from Marquette in three years, right, uh, with a law degree. He started off in engineering and then switched to the law. And so he has this intelligence about him. He also has this kindness. Um, One of my favorite stories about McCarthy is he runs for president of uh, Marquette University's senior or junior class. I forget which one. Um, And he has this one main rival and he and the main rival say, okay, in the spirit of um, gamesmanship and the spirit of friendship, we're going to vote for each other when the election comes in and, uh, of course, the election happens and it's a tie, right? The election goes again and McCarthy ends up winning by two votes. And so on the recount or after the, the election was redone, McCarthy's opponent says, to him, well, Joe, did you you hold true and, and actually vote for me the second time? And McCarthy said, no, you wanted me to vote for the best man, right? And so uh, McCarthy has this moment where he is insidious but then the opponent tells a story about his father dying from a heart attack two years later and the only person from his school showing up being joe mccarthy and so mccarthy has this ability it's it's weird to think of it now the way that we think of him as popular culture is you know the perpetual five o'clock shadow drunkard loudish you know bumbling around but he had this if not kindness to him then this ability to connect with other people um particularly around what we would think of as kind of a blue collar cultural zeitgeist um, and people who shared those kind of values of leadership industry, 
Wisconsin's state motto is forward, right? This idea that you're always driving forward towards something. And, and McCarthy's energy inspired people in many ways. And I think it is, you know, who knows what causes this turn in him. Um, but he's always opportunistic, regardless of what age. Uh, but he also feels these deep pressures of being in Washington. He feels this deep desire to be um, well-known and to win. And I think those pressures end up getting to him and meaning that some of his negative qualities become amplified as he gets older, continues drinking, and starts to, uh, in many ways, come up with this uh, complex of persecution as he becomes more popular in the 1950s. Another similarity between he, uh, between McCarthy and Cohn is the fact that uh, Cohn was at Columbia University at age 16, and when he graduated, he had both uh, a baccalaureate degree and a law degree. Hmm. He did both those things in, what, three years or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he actually has to wait a year before taking the uh, New York bar exam because he's too young (laughs) to sit for the bar. Uh, There is an asterisk to that one in the sense that when McCarthy, excuse me, when Cohn goes through Columbia, the uh, regulations and the requirements, I should say, are much shorter and uh, uh, not as strict as they were maybe 10 or years ago, partially because World War II is going on. And so many professors and students have left to go help with the war effort. They give Cone and other students a pass on many required courses because there's no one there to teach them. Right. So Cone, even though he's bragging that he gets through Columbia in three years and no one else has done it before, the fact of the matter is his Columbia that he had to go through is certainly not the Columbia of you know, 1935, nor of 1955, right? He was there at a very specific time that was beneficial to his progress. We've got about three minutes left. And what I want to do is uh, go quickly through the Army McCarthy hearings, because uh, in the long run, it did not help Cohn and McCarthy. Uh, It was detrimental to uh, their positions in Washington. And uh, Joe McCarthy, uh, at age 47, died because he had cirrhosis of the liver, uh, among other things, and Mm. uh, was in the hospital because he had uh, alcohol withdrawal symptoms, among other things. And, of course, we know about Cohn, but he had an afterlife. And I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on that because he he was a high-powered attorney after he was certainly drummed out of Washington in a sense. Uh, And although McCarthy wasn't censured, he was, uh, I don't know what the term was, but there was a a resolution was passed condemning him for his behavior as a U.S. senator that was not in the best interests of the Senate. Mm -hmm. But when uh, Cohen started practicing law back in New York, some of his clients were interesting people. Uh, there was George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees. Uh, there were uh, a number of mafiosi, uh, Ian Schrager and uh, Steve, Steve Rubell, the, uh, the proprietors of Studio 54, which was really hot at the time. And then, as you've mentioned before, Donald Trump. Uh, so he had some 
big names and some fair success, but uh, because of the ravages of uh, AIDS, HIV AIDS, um, he died probably earlier than he should have too. But both men and J. Edgar Hoover, uh, they, they made their mark on history. Uh, and as you've pointed out, gossip, innuendo, and uh, some of these other terms that you've used in the book were things that they put into practice and did very well for a while, but then they were hoisted by their own petard in the end. Hmm. Yeah, they, they, it worked because the moment allowed it to work. And I think perhaps, you know, as we're closing up here, a lesson for uh, our own moment is these falsehoods, um, whether it be about the prevalence of communists or the 2020 election, or whatever, only gets spread because people are willing to not think critically necessarily and hear what they want to hear rather than uh, hear what is accurate. And so when you think about Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn, yes, this is a biography and triplicate, this book. Yes, I'm interested in their own personal stories. But in many ways, it's something that reveals more about the time and the commitments of the era than it does about their own personal um, commitments, right? Someone was going to come along and take advantage of these anxieties in the 1950s. Someone was going to come along and take advantage of the gossip industry. It just happened to be these three guys uh, who figured out how to do it before anyone else. Uh, someone was going to uh, manipulate and expose the issues with the American electoral system um, eventually, just so happened to be a real estate developer from Manhattan that figured out how to do it. I want to thank you, uh, Christopher Elias, author of the book Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation. And I'm not insinuating anything bad here, but this was a very interesting and lively hour, and I'm really happy I read your book. So thank you for being here today, Chris. Uh, it was an enjoyable time. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.